0: Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 358. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, we bring you a double-header special featuring author Rachel K. Jones. Rachel lives in Athens, Georgia with her husband, Jason, where she's doing literacy research while pursuing a second degree in speech-language pathology. She knows six languages and might consider forgetting them in exchange for a zookeeper position at a dinosaur park. That'll make sense later. Oh, she's also the new co-editor of PodCastle, which is pretty rad. The two stories of hers that we're featuring are Ten Wretched Things About Influenza Sedarius and Mami La Ten Wretched Things first appeared in daily science fiction. Mami La first appeared in cross genres. So without further ado, we bring you Ten Wretched Things About Influenza Sedarius and Mami La by Rachel K. Jones. 10 Wretched Things About Influenza Sidereus by Rachel K. Jones. 10. Influenza Sidereus begins as a general malaise, That is always the first symptom. Perhaps you wish to doze on the sofa, but your husband suggests a little fresh air instead. You do feel better after the walk, but by the next morning, the listlessness has returned tenfold. Your husband complains when you order takeout instead of making the pot roast, but you feel too tired to care. Nine. Next, you feel pinprick pain all around the eye sockets. The ache radiates downward along your spine as the disease spreads through your nervous system. If you lie very still, the pain goes away. The soreness coupled with the lethargy will cause you to doze throughout the day, first briefly and then at length as the illness progresses. Eight. Over-the-counter cold and flu medicines fail to relieve the symptoms. You buy little red pseudoephedrine pills and chase them down with grape-flavored phenylephedrine syrup. When those don't work, you try a nasal spray with oxymetazoline. For the aches, you take two aspirin, then four, then eight, then sixteen, and then finish the whole bottle. But nothing changes. Seven. Next goes your sense of balance. Vertigo makes housekeeping and yard work impossible, and your husband snaps at you when you forget to iron his shirts for his court date in the morning. You stumble out of bed at 5am to starch the collars, stopping every few moments to steady yourself against the wall. 6. Once your balance is shot, nausea sets in. Your stomach cramps up like you are about to retch, but somehow you never do, even when you kneel over the toilet and stick a finger down your throat. You think if you could just vomit, you would feel like yourself again. 5. Doctors cannot treat your flu. When you make an appointment with a doctor and arrive in the waiting room after an expensive cab ride, for you no longer trust yourself to drive and your husband refuses to take the time from work, when you are finally in that horrid paper gown, seated on the cold steel examination table, and you've finished explaining your illness, the doctor throws back his head and roars. (laughs) Is this some kind of joke, he asks, between gasps. You do not know how to answer a question like that, so you swallow back your tears and say, no, this is not a joke, that your illness has gone on for two weeks now and you need some relief. He wipes his flushed cheeks and tells you that you have Influenza Sidereus, the Iron Flu, and that you need to see a specialist immediately. He scribbles down an address and dismisses you. You are not completely out of earshot when he dissolves into cackles again. 4. The specialist's clinic is not like most doctor's offices. Instead of antiseptic, it smells of rust and gasoline. Instead of an examination table, there is a greasy workbench piled with tangled wires and bent screws. Instead of the paper gown, you're given nakedness to wear. "'You cover yourself with your hands as best you can when the specialist opens the door. "'She draws a cruel, pointed awl from the pocket of her oil-spattered coveralls "'and covers her eyes with magnifying goggles. "'Let's unscrew your head and take a look inside, shall we?' "'No!' you cry out, horrified. "'No, don't touch me!' You snatch up your clothes and shove past her into the hallway, choking back sobs as you flee down a corridor crowded with decapitated mannequins and false human limbs arranged like bouquets in buckets. And when you round the corner, you see your own grinning face on a poster peeling off the back of the exit door. The slogan reads, Android Housewives Next Gen Series. Get a gal who's always on. The shock brings you to your knees. Then slowly, because you don't want to believe it, you place your hands on either side of your head, twist it like a jar lid, and see just how far it goes. Three. Your husband will never catch the flu from you. Your flu is not contagious. He will never suffer in sympathy alongside you. You will not nurse him back to health. When you confront him about the poster, he turns deep red and punches some numbers into his cell phone. You hear your husband arguing with your manufacturers. He calls you defective. He calls you cheap Chinese shit. He demands to retire. Turn you, to exchange you, whatever they tell him only makes him redder. Whenever he hangs up, he ignores you for a full hour despite your pleas. You promise him you will be a good wife. You promise to iron his shirts. You promise to cook and clean every day despite the nausea. You promise to give him spectacular sex despite the vertigo. You promise to rub his feet, sing to him, and perform limber stripteases even though every motion hurts. You promise you won't complain anymore. He tells you to hush and to demonstrate your obedience. And so you do. In the silence that follows, you look up from your perfect hands into the eyes of the man you can't help but love. You're out of warranty, he says at last. I can't return you. I guess we'd better talk. That's when you realize he is not your husband anymore. He is your owner. Two. You cannot cure your flu. You can only endure it. A return trip to the mechanic confirms that you are permanently broken. Surprisingly, your husband treats you more gently now. Sometimes he finishes the ironing while you sleep in. When you struggle up the stairs to bed, he coaxes you with soft encouragements. Come on, baby, you can do it. Don't give up on me. One day, when you are riding together in his second-hand sedan, the engine struggles to turn over and you hear him repeat the same words. One, before you fell ill, no one told you that you were an android. Now, they never let you forget it. You are a machine, a broken, defective machine. At night, you long for silence, but you can't fall asleep. Your husband snores beside you, loud and arrhythmic. You close your eyes, straining your ears to catch your own heartbeat. Instead, you hear the metallic drone of thousands of tiny gears churning inside your chest. You realize you are waiting for them to stop. Mami Hlapanatapai by Rachel K. Jones On Navarino Island, off the coast of Chile, Marta mops outside the tyrannosaur's habitat as the tourists press in to see the dinosaurs. They come with their reluctant children in tow. They weave their fingers through chicken wire fences and gaze down into open pits while the kids tug at their legs and demand ice cream. Outside the tyrannosaurs' pen, the children snub the king of lizards and chase the gulls instead. For these children, there has never been a world without dinosaurs. Inside their sunken habitats, the thunder lizards browse among replica ferns and preen their plumage, geneticists' pride and janitors' bane. At night, Marta descends and slopes and collects feathers by the binful. As the tourists wend their way toward the exit, the parents will confess to one another that the dinosaurs were not what they expected. Not the green-scaled dragons of their youth, which they shaded in coloring books and treasured on t-shirts and lunchboxes. Not the wise-faced Apatosaurus with artful vegetation clenched in its jaws. The beasts were extraordinary, they will add, but they were not otherworldly. It is as if they have revisited a childhood home and found the room shrunken, the lawn fenced, the woods dispossessed of sprites. In the resurrection of the dinosaurs, something else has gone extinct. As Marta mops outside the tyrannosaur's enclosure, the elderly zookeeper guides her tour through the exhibit, expounding upon prehistory in rapid English. Marta feels within herself a deep pining, an intense ache, a desire for more than dung and plumage and discarded gum. In Russian, there is a word for this feeling, tuska, for which there is no perfect translation. Opportunities are scarce for natives on the island. Marta's mother spends her days making traditional Yagan baskets for tourists who want something exotic for the mantle at home. Her father wears a reproduction loincloth and squats in a reproduction shelter in the Heritage Village so that visitors can understand what Charles Darwin meant when he called the Yagans savages. Darwin couldn't comprehend how civilized people slept naked in near-freezing temperatures. Marta takes her lunch in the employee break room, where a flyer has been taped to the wall. Open interviews on Monday morning for the retiring zookeeper's job. Marta asks a co-worker to translate the last line for her. Candidates must speak English. She wants the job more than she's wanted anything, and knows there is a way. Last month, an uncle paid for a new procedure which promised instant fluency in any language, swapped his Yagan for French, and moved to Europe. Language, the ad claims, is a lattice of paths through the tangled wilderness of the brain. If you didn't mind erasing the map, losing your old tongues, you could learn any language in the company catalog almost overnight. She did not wish to lose the Yagan language, but Marta feels the future closing around her like the glassed-in walls of the pterodactyl habitat. In the mornings, she winches herself to the roof to polish off the dust prints where they throw themselves at the glass all night. In German, there is a word for this feeling, Purschlusspanik, for which there is no perfect translation. Two days, the ads promise, and you will speak your new language fluently. Just two days. Outside the tyrannosaur's habitat, the old zookeeper wraps her coat a little tighter and shivers beneath the heaters that warm the dinosaurs. Marta mops in short sleeves and thinks nothing of the chill. Her grandmother said Yagan blood runs a full degree hotter than the blood of white people, but that wasn't the secret to living naked in the cold. It was the fires, said her grandmother. They lit fires up and down the coastlines in the shelters of the rock. And while the sailors passed near our shores, they called it Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire, and wondered at the perpetual plumes of smoke rising in the night as though it were the abode of dragons. On Friday evening, Marta arrives for her appointment 30 minutes early. She pages through a book on velociraptors that she bought at the zoo's gift shop. The cartoon lizards are green and scaled and featherless, in deference to the sensibilities of the older patrons. She thinks of velociraptor bones in museums around the world. What would their ancestors make of the resurrection? Of the cages? As if summoned by her thoughts, a featherless raptor steps from her shadow and nips her hand. Marta drops the book in surprise. The nurse calls her name, gazes straight through the raptor. Marta searches the lizard's black eyes for an explanation, but finding none, she abandons it in the waiting room. The nurse places something like a spherical cage around her head. When the doctor touches the button, it is as if a fiery ball smashes deep into the surface of her brain, throwing up a screen of dust so that all her thoughts are thick and blurred. After the procedure, Marta stumbles alone into the rapidly descending night. The cold assaults her from all sides. Shivering, she lifts her chin and sees smoking bonfires strung like beacons along the dirt road leading to her grandmother's home. The velociraptor darts from her shadow and bolts toward the fires, and feeling an answering tug in her navel, Marta follows. As they reach the fire in succession, the flames sputter and die out. Always fire ahead, always darkness behind. The ground is thick with mud, their feet leave indents with each step, but when she looks back she sees only the velociraptor's delicate, bird-like impressions. At the final bonfire, Marta staggers to a stop. She cannot see what is beyond, whether the road continues or branches or falls into nothingness. In the rapidly failing blaze of the last fire, She gazes into the velociraptor's strange, beady eyes, and suddenly, it is as if they understood one another perfectly. Marta thinks there is a word for this in Yagan.
1: This is Rachel K. Jones, And I've been asked to record an author's note saying a few words about my stories for the Strabblecast doubleheader. Ten Wretched Things about Influenza Sidereus began as a joke in my online crit group back during National Novel Writing Month in November 2013. We were supposed to do daily check-ins, reporting our word count, um, talking about our progress on the event. But at some point during the month, we all separately across several states started to get sick. it turned into this uh, catalog of misery every day of people logging in and saying how they couldn't get anything written because they had the flu or had a cold and I, I joked that maybe it was an electronic virus and that we were spreading it to each other via the internet since it was just one after another after another and this was how we were about to discover we were all androids. And my friend Dave had it even worse because every time he reported in another one of his kids got sick in his household and another and another. And one night I was lying awake, sick myself, thinking about this and it hit me. How horrible would it be if everyone in a family caught this electronic flu except for one person? That person would be immune because logically they were the owner and to me it struck me as such a horrible thought. so I got up in the middle of the night, and I sat down at my computer, and I wrote the first draft of the story. Mami comes from a famously untranslatable word in the Yagan language, um, who um, are a people that hail from Tierra del Fuego. Um, the title comes from the same word. There's a few different translations given for the word. Uh, one of them says that Mammy is when two people exchange a perfect look of understanding, um, an unspoken communication of uh, being in full agreement about what is being expressed. The Agan language is also interesting in that is it is almost extinct. There is only one living person in the entire world who is a native speaker, Christina Calderon, and when she dies the language will die with her. This strikes me as unbearably sad. What must it be like to speak a language since birth and to have no one left to speak it to? What unique words and ideas will die forever if your language died out? And from there I decided to add dinosaurs because most stories could do with a few more dinosaurs at least in my opinion So thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the stories
0: And that was our double header Hope you enjoyed it. I love how Rachel essentially pulled together a whole story around words that we don't even have in English. In a future world where technology allows us to bring everything back that we've lost down to the frickin' Tyrannosaur, isn't it interesting the one thing you can still lose for good is your own language. The Guinness Book of World Records lists Mami Hla as the most succinct word, defining it as looking at each other hoping that either will offer to do something which both parties desire but are unwilling to do. It describes a fraction of a moment in our lives, a moment when we're speechless, when two people look at each other without speaking, want the same thing, but for whatever reason are powerless to take it beyond that moment like a young girl and a velociraptor, for example. Tuska, another word referenced in the story. Vladimir Nobokov once said, No single word in English renders all the shades of Tuska. It means more than melancholy, boredom, yearning, and spiritual anguish. It's a dull ache of the soul, a longing with nothing to long for, a sick pining, and a vague restlessness. Opportunities are scarce for natives on this island. And a young girl longs for something more. Is it to be a zookeeper? Does she even know? Hell, it's an island. By its very nature, it's set up to naturally make you look out towards the horizon and say, wonder what's out there. Then there's the German word, Torschlusspanik, literally translates as a gate-closing panic. It's a sense of anxiety or fear that one's life is passing them by and that their future opportunities are diminishing. The tick of the biological clock, the midlife-crisis cherry-red sports car, the college grad stuck in limbo living with his or her parents, the cattle anxious as hell to get through the gate even though, for all they know, it might be the one leading to the slaughtering house, the pterodactyl banging against the plate glass. What does it say about our English language that we don't have words for things like these? As our words, our society, and our cultural priorities shift throughout the ages, how is our language evolving? What kinds of subtle changes and transactions are we making that reflect the types of things we draw meaning from? What are we giving up and losing? What are we gaining? Seriously, we have the word twerking and not mama mamahlapanatapai. Now there's cause for Torschlusspanik. Anyways, moving on. Let's hit our 100-character story winner this week. By Drew did this. Here we go. We watched the animals. They watched us back. Who will move first, we asked. Whoever has the most to gain, they answered. Think you can write a good story with only one hundred characters, not counting spaces? Of course you can, you talented son of a bitch. Give it a shot. Post it in our forums at forums.travelcast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow the Travelcast on Twitter at the Travelcast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, The Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial no Driver's License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Spencer Bingham. Spencer's a Bay Area animator. He builds computers by day and posts art by night at binghamanimation.com. He can be tweeted at scbingham, and he is surrounded by tiny plastic robots. Please send help. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayton, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, you cannot cure your flu. You can only endure it.